0: Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative
1: photographer must be imaginative.
2: Ed and I are both really interested in kind of this open work and ambiguity and anonymous quality.
0: We always talk about this, Melissa and I, you know, how editing is just sort of this almost impossible to describe act.
1: I'm Jordan Weitzman, and this is Magic Hour. The show that delves into the minds of photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Today I speak with Ed Pinar and Melissa Cattanese, two photographers based in Pittsburgh who live and work together. Both Ed and Melissa have their own separate practices, but together they operate spaces corners an artist-run bookstore and gallery dedicated to the photobook. They have lectured and taught together at the Hartford School of Art and produced museum exhibitions such as the Sandbox and Paper Movies, shows dedicated to the contemporary photobook. They are both fixtures in the photobook world and their relationships to photography are as prolific as they are personal. Melissa's most recent book, Dive Dark, Dreams Slow, received critical acclaim and was exhibited last year at Pier 24 in San Francisco. Ed keeps busy as well. He's published several photo books such as Golden Palms, Same Difference, and Animals That Saw Me. He began taking pictures as a kid in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where he grew up. I visited Ed and Melissa at their storefront in Pittsburgh's Troy Hill neighborhood, a small, quiet part of town overlooking the Allegheny River, where we had this conversation. My
0: photography continuum, I, as I think of it, started in, as... a uh, amateur, essentially, in high school, um, just taking photographs of friends. Uh,
1: Melissa, how How, how did you come to photography?
2: Well, my experience with photography, I think, started at home. Um, My my mother takes a lot of photographs of us, portraits. Mm -hmm. Um, She's not a photographer, but she does a lot of, like, family snapshots.
0: I mean, I can go back as a child, you know, having, like, clubs, you know, with friends, and one of them was a Detective agency. And <laughs> I, <laughs> no was, <way>. yeah, <laughs> I was always, uh, as a kid, like for some reason, really interested in the idea of like, you know, the ch- romanticized notion of what a detective was or whatever. But to me, that was always about like, you know, seeing things and like kind of noticing things. And I think that sort of somehow, and photography, I had like my first camera photos were actually being used in that context. I was always obsessed with recording things, I suppose. And in that context, as a child, the the camera was always this sort of like an investigative tool, I guess.
1: I feel like a lot of people start off with photography and they have a certain kind of preconceived notion of what pictures are supposed to look like and whatnot. And as opposed to just kind of taking pictures of your everyday life and surroundings. Sure. But you were doing that, which is an interesting thing.
0: Yeah. And that's why I think that, you know, almost accidental um, quality of the amateur as something that I almost, you know, I think intentionally over time, try to hold on to or try to like, you know, kind of continue. Maybe that's, or also, again, what for me, the salad days work is this sort of like starting point, you know, zero point of photography of like, of awareness, you know, that's why it's like the title kind of uh, evokes that moment of youthful uh, ignorance, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You know, we wanted to make photographs that were just hilarious first of all you know like that was one of our goals is once we started realizing that photographs could
1: be funny (laughs) really okay so that was like something you were thinking about early on there
0: was always a humorous attempt yes absolutely and i think again it was at at least in this point i mean this is okay those i'm speaking specifically of salad days so it's like mid 90s or something so in a moment of which is already hard to imagine in our accelerated media sphere (laughs) but you know you couldn't make things as easily you know it was still kind of exotic and sort of unobtainable to like you know now in this DIY culture you know which is you know uh, definitely was in started then but you know you didn't have the ability to like create media in the way you do now so there was a difference you know and to, to make a photograph to us was like our ability to, like, you know, when you look at catalogs or magazines, you see photographs, but you could actually make some of your own and then kind of reference what you were seeing. That was your only way to interact with that at that point, you know, and with the culture at large in a way.
1: You'd go out, you'd take photos and then, and you'd, you'd print them all? Like you'd make little, uh, four by sixes at Walmart? This,
0: you know, yeah, exactly. This was a Walmart, you know, Kmart era actually, you know, taking the photos to the drugstore basically moment, you know, like that was how you got film processed. So it was always like, oh, shoot a few, shoot a roll of film was like a big deal. You know, you'd have that roll for like a week maybe. right. <laughs> it was right. still kind of expensive or, you know, I- exclusive at that time, um. And we would, you know, and that was, again, that was always part of the fun. is like the going up, you know, picking up the film and not knowing that like having these little treasures appear that you didn't expect. And for us, it was always, it started becoming hilarious. Like when we could get photos back that we almost felt like we accidentally got someone else's photographs, you know, like. Right. So that was like <laughs> a game we would play, for example. Like we would take these strange photos that would almost feel like that's not even us, you know, like that was, you know. so this is part of my crash course like early days of uh exploring photography which you know is kind of how i still like to act and treat it you know i still try to continue that journey and try to remember how fun and exciting those simple things were and you know and really maybe that's all there is to it on a fundamental level i try to kind of hold on to that
2: my uh my upbringing i was always surrounded by photographs so um and I'm sure it's normal for most families to take family snapshots, but my mom kind of ups the ante a little bit and has, (laughs) like, photographs all over the walls. She's, like, documenting every event. She's always trying to get groups together to take pictures. Um, So there's, like, all over our house, there's just, like, salon-style portraits, family portraits. She makes these, like, collages, which um, Hmm. we've been kind of reprimanding her now because she was using, like some like original photographs that (laughs) she probably shouldn't have used. And, but she, there was one, um, she did have those like cardboard cutouts made of all of us, like little figurines, like photographic figurines. (laughs) So there's like of each one of us. Uh Um, So just being like surrounded by family snapshots my entire life and just like having my picture taken in a group, um, that was, I think, uh, more of an, an unconscious Mm -hmm. inspiration or through osmosis that began my interest in photography. But it really started in high school more when I started taking pictures more um, intentionally. Um, I was always like an outsider in high school. So um, I gravitated to the art department and we had, you know, like a separate building and I would spend lunchtime there. And that's when I really um, became... I guess fell in love with the alchemy of photography. So I'd spend time in the darkroom during lunch and my photography teacher was very um, motherly and nurturing and she was always there and we would spend a lot of time together. And um, so that was my, that's how I got into it.
1: What kind of pictures were you taking at that time?
2: At that time I was taking more like architectural, like just like like learning the craft, like walking around, I'd go like, I'm from, Um, northeastern Ohio so I would just like spend some time downtown Cleveland um, photographing the architecture and bridges and I like I I always gravitated towards like industrial areas so I was taking a lot of you know amateur pictures and just for me it was more the process of being in the dark room and just like watching the the um the latent image the Um, the magic yeah so um It wasn't until college when I started, you know, more, um, you know, thinking more conceptually about the content that I was shooting.
1: So you guys both decided to go to grad school and that's that's where you met. What was the first stuff that was like exciting you that you were looking at? Definitely
0: books, I think, were very becoming very important to to us. I mean, I had a small photo book collection, and that was, you know, kind of, and it was sort of the very, very beginning of bookmaking. Um, but the I guess probably the most significant thing that of that moment worth mentioning is that we, you know, one of the things that came out of our grad school experience is that we, you know, of course, we were always taking photos, and we were we were the kind of, we banded together with a few students that we were very interested in this way of making photographs from the world. And, you know, we were sort of rejecting the, I think is sort of the, you know, almost a default kind of premise of graduate school that like just taking photographs is never going to be enough. So there has to be something else, you know? Right. Um, so we were already kind of engaging with that and trying to figure out what that meant and how to like do what we felt was we were doing and experience and learn about the work we were interested in that we weren't seeing as much of, you know, because it was very dominant, you know, uh, and again, this is sort of the birth of the internet at the moment. So there was some information available, but it wasn't, and it wasn't the birth of the internet, but the internet, uh, photography internet, as we know it, um, that information and everybody wasn't online yet, it didn't seem. So we were still kind of figuring stuff out.
1: Do you guys feel that um, the process of editing and then making, and then doing something with them, making books, do you feel that that's something that a lot of students or a lot of i guess younger photographers grasp today or are you or you see less of that
2: No, I think that it's definitely embedded in the visual kind of language and dialogue of the millennials today. I think there's lots of um interest in books and you know I think it, there's always been that desire for photographers to make books of their work. I don't think that's something that's new. Um, I just think that because of the accessibility and print on demand that, um, and just the explosion of books and small publishers and, um, self-published books that a lot of aspiring artists and photographers are, you know, that's the natural, um, form that they're, they're pursuing their work in. Mm -hmm. I think that's, um, definitely exploded more than when we were in graduate school
1: right
0: and also uh, just one last thing on that it's just you know it does seem to me too that the this moment of you know intense you know image saturation like i do think it has inevitably increased visual literacy to a certain degree where i do feel like at the very least you know now more and more people are accustomed to absorbing you know just a ton of information in and what you know so in a way the photo book it's almost like prepping for the photo book in a way or like appreciating that more i think is a result of that kind of default like we're always sifting and looking through piles of information so i think that maybe the awareness and and also you know what distinguishes i think in photography now like of course we can see incredible images all the time anytime and you know but then now maybe what's to level beyond that is like you know the captivating us is how people use images together you know so i think it's like a natural kind of it's natural that that becomes more important as the other step is, you know, easier in a way. So now I think, so maybe we're more hungry for those like more complicated and more densely layered kind of arrangements of photographs. So I do think, I mean, that's a positive uh, reading
1: of the moment. (laughs) So were you guys, when you were in grad school, were you experimenting with that kind of stuff? Bookmaking and uh, editing and... Yeah. Yeah. There ended up being a
0: small group of us that we um, were always basically taking photographs. And then at some point we realized that how funny would it be if we put all of the photographs we took of each other together and as if they were photographed by someone else? Because, of course, with our, you know, in our group, we each had photos of each other. So then if you when you looked at them together, it looked like there was someone else there, perhaps, who Uh took all those photos. So then that became like um, actually a big foundation of what a lot we did. My last year and her first year of graduate school was... uh, experimenting with this little project that we had of a fictional photographer who would you know had a lot of different projects and as were some of these first print on demand books were
1: of this uh photographer's work <laughs> D- did they have a name
2: Lester Pleasant
1: Lester Pleasant mm-hmm. huh
2: yeah and and i think that was like a very um kind of uh pivotal moment for for me especially with the idea of editing and um Uh, you you know, pulling pictures together from various sources um, from the same experience as well. Um, But, you know, losing that self-consciousness and that ego of just editing your own pictures, Mm -hmm. I think became um, really important, uh, a really kind of crucial learning experience for me, where it was, you know, I realized I was interested in that, that idea of, space and separation separation of yourself from the photograph or just using it as raw material um to kind of create some distance
1: what were you looking at at the time what were you, you had a little photo book collection what were the one or two books that really excited you that were kind of doing what you guys wanted to be doing in a really interesting way
0: rinko kawachi was huge for both of us at that time really oh yeah yeah huh okay um, her book, uh, *Utanani* was out then. I mean, I'll, I'll actually... I had a, um, at least one of her books at that point.
2: When we were in grad- graduate school... Our library, Cranbrook Library, had a really nice collection of photography books. Um, but we also, it was around the same time that Dashwood Books opened in New York. Uh-huh. So we were taking a lot of trips to New York and we were spending a lot of time at Dashwood. Uh-huh. So we were introduced at that time to a lot of you know, contemporary photography that we hadn't seen before. You know, I was... Introduced to the new topographics, which I hadn't discovered before graduate school um, in college I was just looking at like Diane Arbus and Larry Fink and a lot of a lot of work like that, but um, I, I had not been introduced to you know, Lewis Baltz and You know, I, I remember seeing Stephen Shore in college and thinking it was just like really boring and you know, there was a, a little bit of a paradigm shift when I started Cranbook and Jem Southam was a big inspiration for me um, and the idea of, you know, photographing the same place over time. And Rinko Kawachi was definitely a huge influence on me.
0: Jason Fulford, of course. I mean, and at this point I was, uh, before Golden Palms was published, but um, I had a few of his books, of course, at that time. So I this is, I mean, at that point it was starting to become more, you know, more tuned in, or starting to find those very specific kind of niche of you know, we were more attuned and more aware of like the art world and the photo world a little bit. So we were trying to, you know, honing in on like that sector, really hungry for seeing work that was made in that in ways that we felt, you know, resonated. And at that time, actually, Sleeping by the Mississippi had just come out around right around that time. And I remember just, I have the, the first edition copy, you know, because again, that you seeing something like that at that moment was very special. You know, it was something else Like it wasn't common. The changing point. Um. In a way, uh, with the photo book history was uh, uh, came out right around that point, the first volume, and I think that you know seemed to usher in this new, you know, or maybe coincidentally happened at this point where there was a lot of republishing, a lot of revisiting of older bodies of work uh, that were previously unavailable. Um, that was for a lot of photographers the only way, and I think historically you'll find all these artists that their only a outlet to seeing possibilities that were not present in their immediate environment were through books in terms of presenting work and taking photographs and that maybe weren't you know wouldn't be considered otherwise and and in grad school we sort of solidified that by trying to really hone in on it and try to understand what that was exactly a little bit more.
1: So, how did you guys work on Golden Palms? What was the um, what was the development process and the editing process like?
0: The photographs were made, you know, almost entirely without me seeing them in the moment. And I lived in L.A. I had very little. Money basically, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a common theme in uh, my narrative. Uh, <laughs> uh, and but you know, it's always important for me to keep shooting. Um, and I was always so I, you know, I wanted to, you know, I always made sure I had money for film if not processing. So uh-huh. I always that was always primary. So I was like, oh, I could either process all my film and then not shoot for a few months or I can keep shooting. So I was like, okay, I'll keep shooting. Um, so anyway i wasn't really processing many of the photos you know occasionally here and there so i would get a bit of feedback um once in a while but um and then you know show when i w- did have some of these photographs process and i showed them to jason we had you know some sort of spark insert ensued i guess that I, and again it's sort of hard to pinpoint what that was or why or how what happened basically but we sort of had a mutual agreement i guess of uh, that we wanted to do something together that involved those photographs and then you know, it was really over time I was printing them and getting them developed and then, uh, kind of, you know, continuing to talk, I would send stuff to Jason. Um, and while I was in school, there was a lot of editing and Melissa was very important to that process of editing the book as well. Um, and then actually it wasn't until after graduate school, um, you know, I spent a weekend at Scranton with Jason with like boxes. I remember I took like a Greyhound bus there. I had like you know, boxes of four by six prints, and it was like the master edit session, you know, that was the moment. And so, and again, so Jason was a huge, obviously, influence. He was able to pull something together or help me pull something together from that work that I don't think I would have, I was able to do at the time, you know, it wasn't, um I was still learning, you know, a lot, and, and well, I mean, uh, still am, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so he, and so it was a very, very relaxed process. It was very organic. You know, we, we were under no real rush, you know, and if anything, it probably took too long maybe, but I think it was okay for us. Um, and you know, we, we did a lot of back and forth and he was very open, you know, we did a master edit together and then, um, I went back and changed a bunch of things and I think we were like, okay, that looks great. And then, you know, that was pretty much it, you know, it was a very kind of fluid and, uh, organic i guess
1: what was that that he um that he brought that you couldn't have done yourself
0: part of it is just that you know the jason midas touch you know the 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 fulford magic you know like which you know of course uh, he's just an incredible artist um and i feel like he just has an ability to kind of tread lightly in a way that i've he's i've always had an incredible amount of respect and admiration for what he does and i feel like he's one of uh a huge inspiration to me um so uh, it's hard to say what that is exactly, but to me it was partly like this openness and a playfulness and, you know, qualities, of course, that I was always interested in, but the way he manifested them and, and, and you know, an interest in like ambiguity and, and uh, and which again is like something that I feel like is can often be once, you know, we want to filter out or edit out of our lives, you know, and t- which again is... Or is, which is something I, uh, of course, love about the art zone and photography in particular anyway, because it's one of those areas where I feel like a lot of the values that are not really, you know, basically valued in our culture, maybe like slowness and, uh, you know, contemplation and, you know, ambiguity, uncertainty, you know, mystery, like are kind of celebrated or there's a space for them, you know, it's like to exist. And I feel like Jason exemplified that to me, like as an artist in a way, like creating these kind of very, enigmatic but totally warm and kind of inviting projects that you know just kind of hit on every note um so i felt like he you know from the chaos of a stack of photographs to be able to kind of pick those things out and to be able to really think about what that process meant and how care you know how careful you have to be it's almost and it's sort of such a strange we always talk about this melissa and i um you know how editing is just sort of this Almost impossible to describe, act in a way, and yeah. so I think he helped illuminate a little bit of that, and kind of helped me kind of gain a bit more confidence and how that worked, and and also insight into how to actually continue doing that.
1: You just mentioned it's it's a kind of it's an impossible task editing because there's n- there's no right answer. I mean it's um it's whatever you kind of want it to be. What's the the difference between a body of work or a book being something or taking on meaning versus versus not
2: well i think that um rather than thinking of editing as an impossible task i i like to think about it as an invisible task so it's something that works really well when you um, don't really think about it <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> when it, it all just comes together magically but it, it's very difficult to do and it's difficult to articulate um, but I think that um, maybe to answer your question what defines a group of images with meaning as to as opposed to a group of images that feel maybe random or right um, not cohesive um, I think is the vision of the editor and kind of, the, or maybe not the vision, but the voice and the the tone and the atmosphere that's created by, um, you know, that compiling of, you know, various associations and themes and, um, kind of underlining, um, patterns. Um, so, I mean, I think if it, if it lacks that voice or that Voice may not be the right word to use, but maybe tone or mood, um, then it, it just seems like it could all fall apart. But I think that what's interesting about everything is kind of contradictory because you kind of want it to feel like it could fall apart at the same time. Right. Um, so I don't know. It's, it, like like it, Ed said, it's, it's very hard to articulate. I and mean, you know, a lot of it is in, in intuitive. Um, but a lot of it is based on, you know, formal decisions and, um, Well, it's
0: also, I think maybe a question of intentionality, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's any, why is the book put together? I think that's the question that is also maybe just as important as what is in it, you know, so whether, so that's why there's a difference if it's like,
2: Yeah, what's being communicated or, or, or how you're, how you're communicating.
1: Do you think that talking about that intentionality gives away too much?
2: I don't like to talk about it.
1: Okay, you don't have to if we don't want to. Just, to, I mean,
2: yeah. I, I mean, I think that I, I mean I I will and I and I can. But <laughs> I just I I I feel like you don't want to give away you know the the personal meaning of the work right. too much, and I think that is why Ed and I are both really interested in kind of this open work and ambiguity and um kind of an a, a more of an anonymous quality. I mean, I think for me more um well I think Ed too, but I think we're both making work that's self-referential in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um and we don't really or at least I don't really want to push that kind of more by talking about my intent and my, you know, what the things I was thinking about during, you know, while I was making this body of work. Um, I guess my interest lies in kind of making a connection with the viewer and you know the reader so that they can interpret it in their own way and then have their own you know interpretation and meaning of um of the work Um, but I think you know it's our job as artists to kind of direct and to set the um the tone and the mood and um you know take someone on that journey but when it comes to like the meaning and the intent I think that I, I like to leave that up to the reader.
1: Your recent book that you just came out with, Dive Dark, Dream Slow. How did that project come about? it's It's comprised of a collector's photos.
2: All of the images from the book come from the collection of Peter Cohen, who's a private collector in uh, New York. Um, he's been collecting snapshot photography, photographs for uh, 25 plus years. He also collects um, fine art photography as well, um, but the vast majority of his collection is snapshots. He has over 25,000 snapshots in his tiny little apartment.
1: Wow. So how did you guys meet and how did you get to, uh, to sift through those?
2: Uh, I met Peter at a restaurant uh-huh. Um, so when we were living in New York, I was also uh, waiting tables at a restaurant in the East Village. And he was a regular at that restaurant. And we we got to talking. I waited on him quite a few times. And um, he was familiar with Cranbrook. Um, he used to work for Knoll. Um, and uh, so he knew of Cranbrook. He had been there. Um, he, you know, and then I also at that time, I was having a... Um, an exhibition at Sasha Wolf Gallery um, in Tribeca when when she was there. I had um, my first solo exhibition and I invited him and he came and he enjoyed the show and he invited me into his home to kind of share his photography with me. Wow. Um, So, and then that just kind of started our relationship, which is ongoing um, where I would spend more. So when I was living in New York, but I would spend, uh, regular visits at his apartment, um, helping him to organize his collection. Um, so he stores everything in boxes and the, the images are in, or the snapshots are in baseball card holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every week he would have like more stacks of of snapshots. And so they'd all have to be sorted into these boxes of categories. So a lot of the categories were already determined. Um, we created a few new categories. Um, but so my...
1: Categories that he collected. Yes. Specifically collecting.
2: Specifically, right. Um, and I think that that's what's something interesting about his style of collection for the snapshot collectors um, is that he's not really focused on one particular theme. So a lot of snapshot collectors will be really just interested in, you know, like dogs on cars or, you know, a, a very specific group of images. So he's mm-hmm. collecting... You know his his collection uh, runs the gamut. I think, after a while, they just became these daydreaming sessions for me, where I wasn't really doing a whole lot of work for him. I felt like I was not a good. Uh, uh, informal archivist uh, I was more just like looking and setting aside photographs that um, somehow spoke to me and I, I wasn't really sure why um, and then I would take boxes of photographs home with me every week and just like scan mm-hmm. um, so I, I just like feverishly started taking these photographs and sta- scanning them and then by you know, and then I had my own kind of archive from his collection that I was working from. Yeah. Um, so um, I wasn't really sure what that meant or what that was. Um, the the cover image for the book um, was among the first images that I selected, and that was kind of the the, the jumping off point for the book.
1: want to talk about the humor the humor in the work (laughs) (laughs) sure how do you uh, think about how it translates into pictures right
0: i I, it is something that i think you know maybe people comment normally that you don't see that much of perhaps Mm -hmm. um or you know but i mean humor is one of those weird things right i mean it's you know, so subjective, I think, you know, it's just, you know, look at comedy, you know, it's like, oh, this is the funniest shit thing I've ever seen, you know, and then you play it to your friend and no laughs, you know, I mean, it just <laughs> happens all the time, you know, or like, we watch something and we're like, that wasn't funny at all. And then you see it again, and you're just like crying laughing. So I don't know, you know, like, I, so humor fascinates me, I think, in that way that it's, it, it's, it operates in this, I think this very strange, you know, zone of our minds, you know, um, and I don't know what if there could ever be anything that could be considered universally humorous, you know, because it seems like you know there's lots of things that aren't supposed to be funny that people think are funny, et cetera, et cetera. I mean yeah, um, so I like thinking about that, I think it definitely is part of my at least i hope part of my disposition, you know, I try to uh you know keep that <laughs> try to maintain a a little bit of that uh you know ability to laugh at things, you not take things so seriously. Yeah. Um, I've always sort of had like a weird fascination with comedians and like comedy in general. Like I love funny shows and funny people, you know, and, and, in the thinking of the serious business of being hilarious, you know, I think yeah. that's, I love thinking about that. And I, lo- I think that must be the coolest job ever, you know, basically. So I try to bring some of that into, cause I think art's also a pretty cool, uh, job in a way, you know, you're, and why not be having fun with it instead of, you know, taking it, you know, I don't, I definitely don't subscribe to the tortured artist sort of uh, mm-hmm. manifesto, you know, where I'm like sort of giving myself lashes in the back and pondering how difficult the art making is. You know, yeah. you do that once in a while, but you don't, I don't want to talk about
1: it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so is, is it something that kind of just, uh, that, that it just uh, appears intuitively in the pictures? Is, is
0: I think I'm drawn to the photo, like probably again, maybe from what just is weirdly we were just mentioning. You know, like the moments of like you know early days of taking photos and getting back an envelope of pit- photographs and being like, what the hell is this? This is hilarious. You know, being surprised. Like, so I think I'm drawn to that in my work. You know, so I love it when I make a work or a photo that makes me laugh or that I think could be funny when kind of twisted around. I mean, animals that saw me, I suppose, is sort of the ultimate manifestation of that. Um, uh, you know, maybe the most clear articulation I'll ever do of that kind of thing where just that little twist kind of takes those photographs and kind of like inverts them in a weird way that brings all kinds of hilarity, you know, or could potentially, you know, I think you could look at that book and not laugh, but I think it's not common. I hope, or, you know, like I hope to make a book that, you know, you could look through and have a chuckle here and there and, and, but also have other things to think about and, and experience. I can't rely on that
1: exclusively. I don't think. Yeah. Tim Davis wrote a little bit in an issue of Blindspot a couple of years ago, basically just about this fear of artists um, to to embrace humor and get into the work. And he's an example of meeting someone at a party, and then being this very lively, kind of funny or jovial person, and then going into their studio and looking at the work, and it's and it's just you know, it has nothing to do with them. So that's why when I, when I look at your work and the humorous aspect to it, I don't know you that well, obviously, and that <laughs> might not actually be. you are but i think it is the the personalities are definitely
2: (laughs) congruent i think ed's work and his and his you know disposition yeah we'll be taking photos together and i'll see the images that he's made from the same journey and i'll be like i where did you see that or you know like how did you ma- you know I was there I was there I saw that planter I saw that wall but how did you make it look so funny or you know like it's just the way he sees the world so and I think that's what is so special about some of his photographs is the, the levity and that that ability to instill his you know his personality
1: it's interesting the way the, the way you just described that because your photos often, you know, they, they they have a certain um I guess ob- objective or documentary style. But I guess it's I, I guess it, um what I want to ask is the difference about taking a photo and making a photo. Do you feel that like do you like you see something and you respond to it or you see something and then you kind of work with that and make something out of it? Whew, that's a good question.
0: <laughs> well in a way, you know, it's funny when you just said that now it just made me think, actually I think that like, or, you know, cause in a, it reminded me again of like sort of, you know, grad school conversations like that different, like, are you making a photo or are you just taking, them, you know, <laughs> which me, may, maybe yeah. it's both, you know, cause yeah. maybe, I kind of sometimes think, you know, maybe I am just taking photographs, but then you make the photograph when you decide to use it for something or you, it becomes something else and has a purpose or given assigned a role in a project or something. So maybe that's the, more the making of the photograph than the actual moment you're standing there in a way, for me. So maybe, you know, because I do like to shoot in a way that's very open-ended. Like, I try to, you know, I kind of try to cast a net, I guess, in a way that can capture things that I'll be surprised by. Mm -hmm. So, and again, sort of like, I think all along my process has been sort of geared to sort of, you know, again, maybe sort of trying to enhance the conditions in which all of these things can occur without directly kind of, you know, heavy-handedly sort of dictating how things should go, you know? So it's sort of like, that's always been one of my kind of infrastructural kind of strategies. And so for me, I try to scoop up as many photos and I'm trying to Mm -hmm. shoot and keep excited about being out and shooting without, you know, Oh, I need to make this photo great, you know, or, or or, I mean, of course I want to make a photo great when I take a photo, but you know, not really worrying about what it's going to be or if it's important, you know, like Mm -hmm. letting myself just shoot without having to be so worried about it and basically keeping it fun and enjoyable. And then, You know that sifting process that comes afterward to me is maybe that to me maybe now that I'm thinking about it Maybe that's where the photograph is made in a way or the making is the actual production the processing the printing Not standing there shooting or you know, that's just step a of
1: like You know a through Z or something Melissa since working with a lot of vernacular photography do you still take a lot of your own pictures?
2: Yeah, um, I work, like I was mentioning before, much differently than Ed, where I'm slower and I don't, I spend more time on the collecting of images than actually working with them, which mm-hmm. I think is probably something I need to work on. Um, but yeah, I've been taking photographs, um, just a point and shoot digital camera.
0: And you have your archive. I mean, you have, you know, lots and lots of photos as well in your archive of your own. I yeah.
2: mean, you
1: know, you've yet to see the light. How do your archives look?
2: Boxes. <laughs> shoe bo- negatives and shoe sleeves boxes, and, shoe, yeah. and um, binders, and, um, and, and my digital archive looks much different than Ed's where it's just like everywhere. It's on like three different hard drives all over the place, It's mm-hmm. not tagged or anything. I've, I've definitely not, um, if I've, I haven't tuned the, the flow yet.
1: I want to ask you guys about, about Spaces Corners, where we are actually right now. Where, where are we looking at? What's the view? Um, that's Polish, Polish Hill. Hill. That's Polish Hill yeah, over there. Okay. At, okay. The across the river. Across
2: the Allegheny River.
1: It's really nice. You guys have done a beautiful job in, um, in making and designing and setting up this space. Thank you. How did Spaces Corners come about?
2: Well, we we moved to Pittsburgh in 2011. You know, we had we had tapped out on New York. We we couldn't live there anymore, so we wanted to um, come back to Pittsburgh, and it seemed like a really organic and obvious um, decision to make to start um, just this artist-run space that mm-hmm. um, was also a bookshop, um, and because rents and space was so abundant and affordable here it was very easy to do on uh like a skeleton budget mm-hmm. um yeah i mean i think that we just love being surrounded by books where you know we make books we're we're collectors of books we you know we we wanted to just be surrounded by them and this just seemed like a natural way to um you know build some something here from the ground up um, that could hopefully one day be sustainable. Um I think we each we we each have our, you know, other other roles that we play to help make ends meet. Um, but you know, this is just something that, you know, came about kind of organically and naturally when we moved here.
1: Who comes here? Like who um is is it is it more local, is it
2: we have a lot of tourists that come. Yeah. Um so we're not we're, we're only open on Saturdays and by appointment throughout the week. So on Saturdays and you know we do have, you know, a local audience. It's very small. Um but it seems from my perspective a lot of people that are coming through the door are travelers. Mm-hmm. Um people that have heard from friends of friends that you have to stop here, you know, a lot of people that are passing through. Um, that are coming to the museums, that are um, you know just visiting Pittsburgh, um, which is really interesting.
1: On your website, you have um, you have interesting an interesting categorization system. <laughs> You've categorized, uh, I guess, or you group books into certain categories. Where did that Where did that come from?
2: I think we are inspired by um, you know coming up with this playful way of grouping books together and. Um, wanting the public to be able to access books that may not, you know, in, in a um, less predictable way. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that inspired us was the experience of being in a video store mm-hmm. and, you know, browsing hmm. movies by, you know, genre like sci-fi or yeah. mysteries or, or, you know, like bookstores. Yeah. Um,
0: I think it also comes out of our working as photographers, right? We're kind of making these categories that we're sort of like thinking that can, you know, different ways to arrange things. So and it also for us sort of as, you know, and ultimately I think Spaces Corners is this sort of experimental framework for us as well as I guess for the audience in a way. But especially for us in terms of like a way to be involved in the book world from a different angle in a way to kind of, you know, explore all these things that we enjoy about books as maybe from a different side not just as the artist so what are you guys working on now
2: there's um two specific projects that we're hoping will be our next um books by ed and i where there's um winter nights walking mm-hmm. which um the public has seen iterations of yeah um so we're we're continuing to work on that body of work and hopefully that will be done sometime in 2017 maybe um, the second project is an anniversary project. So it's 10-year anniversary of one of my first print-on-demand books that we're hoping to actually publish as a trade volume. Yeah, I'm hoping to have that out in 2016.
1: What's that one called? Stardust. Stardust? Mm-hmm. Hmm. This is her work that
0: had preceded Dive Dark in her own snapshot. So it's kind of interesting to see how... If you're not aware of Melissa's trajectory, you look at her Dive Dark book, and you know it's it is you know interesting. But then to think or to realize that maybe that it actually came from a photographer who was making her own work, and they later went into you know Mm -hmm. I think it's you know anyway I think it'll be an interesting piece of the puzzle of Melissa's kind of trajectory. I look forward
1: to seeing both. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, really Mm -hmm. appreciate it. Thank you. That was my conversation with Ed Pinar and Melissa Catanzzi. This episode of Magic Hour was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and Michelle Macklem. It was edited by Crystal Duhame. And a special thanks to Lenny Pierre-Ramos. For more information on Magic Hour, along with visuals and works that are mentioned in the show, visit magichourpodcast.org. Leave us a review on iTunes, too. We'd really appreciate it. Tune in next time to hear my conversation with Jason Fulford that we recorded in Scranton, Pennsylvania, where he's based. Jason is a photographer and bookmaker and has earned many accolades, including a 2015 Guggenheim Fellowship. His work extends far beyond his personal practice, though. Jason co founded JL Books, which has gone on to publish over 40 books of other artists' work. He also frequently gives lectures, does workshops, and produces and designs books for other publishers such as The Photographer's Playbook, which Aperture released last year. We'll be airing this conversation in two weeks' time, so listen then.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen,